Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Text for our message this morning comes from our epistle lesson from Hebrews chapter 12, which was read for you just a few moments ago. The title of my message is The Three R's of God's Discipline. Discipline. So many good things in life are a result of discipline, aren't they? Good grades at school, high scores on tests, athletic and musical achievements, successful careers and relationships, personal health and wellness are all dependent on discipline. Hard work, diligence, resilience, and of course, delayed gratification pay off in the long run. We all recognize this. We understand it and accept it. And yet, it really is a strange phenomenon when you think about it. I mean, how strange that some of the best-tasting foods are usually the worst for your health. I mean, come on, can't I just have an extra-large piece of cherry pie a la mode without feeling bad about it? And without gaining three extra pounds? You know that when you lift weights and work out that you are literally tearing down your muscles so that they can be built up back stronger. Really gives meaning to the phrase, no pain, no gain. Or as my gunnery sergeant from chaplaincy school liked to say, pain is just weakness leaving the body. How strange that in order to get physically stronger, it requires a day that begins with a 5 a.m. wake-up call, soreness, sweat, and me keeling over, gasping for breath. But I suppose it shouldn't surprise us that God's world works this way. God's ways are not our ways. Our God is a God of great reversals. God's foolishness is greater than man's wisdom. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Jesus, the King of Kings, came into this world, or excuse me, Jesus, the King of Kings, came into Jerusalem, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world in the lonely town of Bethlehem and was laid in a manger. And Jesus, our Lord and Savior, departed this world, scorned, shamed, and dying on a cross. Let me start my message this morning by saying that it is absolutely critical that as the, Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews exhorts us earlier in chapter 12, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. As I mentioned earlier, discipline certainly does not come naturally. It's hard to consistently study, practice, eat right, work out, read our Bibles, and a whole host of other things that we should be doing on a daily basis. But here's the real challenge. You and I have a strong, strong aversion to a particular kind of discipline that God uses, a discipline called affliction or suffering. And so it is critical that we keep our eyes on Jesus because this affliction, this suffering of Jesus is the only thing that allows us to accept our own suffering as palatable, tolerable, bearable, and yes, ultimately, a blessing and joy. This morning, I'd like to talk about how even though it seems counterintuitive, God's discipline, even his affliction, truly is a blessing for you and me. My goal is that after hearing my message, you would more fully embrace God's discipline as a sign of your Heavenly Father's love and a tool that he uses to strengthen your faith in Jesus. 
And to do so, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 12. In this text and throughout Scripture, God teaches us that there are three R's to his discipline. Reproof, restraint, and reliance. So let's start with reproof. Early on, we see the writer of Hebrews drawing from the wisdom of Proverbs. He is quoting Proverbs chapter 3 when he writes, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. To be reproved is to be rebuked, reprimanded, admonished, corrected. No one likes to be told that they're wrong. And yet there is great wisdom in accepting correction. Reproof helps us become better people. Through reproof, we acquire manners. We learn the difference between right and wrong, and we gain an understanding and an appreciation for morality and ethics. And I don't know about you, but I think some of life's greatest lessons are when we make big mistakes and then suffer the consequences for them. Some of you know that I grew up playing soccer. Even after high school, I continued to play in competitive men's leagues in the summers. And one summer, I learned a very hard lesson. I was chasing a ball down the sideline when a player from the opposing team came barreling in, lowered his shoulder, and took a real cheap shot at me. And he just sent me flying out of bounds. And I got up steaming. I let my anger get the best of me, and I sprinted directly for him and swiftly proceeded to sweep the legs right out from under him. And that's when I received my reproof. I was immediately issued a red card, and I was ejected from the game by the referee. The worst part is that this particular league took red cards very seriously. I had to pay a $50 fine and sit out the next game just killed me because I I loved playing and it was excruciating just sitting there on the sideline wishing I could get in the game and of course regretting that angry impulse. But you know what? I learned a valuable lesson from that experience. I learned the importance of keeping my emotions in check, not losing my temper, and of course the foolishness of vengeance. Let me ask you this, what if there was no referee there that day to step in and reprove me? What if there was no policy to make me sit out a game, pay a fine, and really make me think about my actions? Who knows? Perhaps my life would look differently. Maybe I'd be a real hothead and have some serious anger issues. Certainly wasn't fun, but I understand that that consequence, that reproof, was very much needed. It's difficult. It's difficult to receive reproof. But sometimes I wonder if it's even harder to give it. To you parents out there, are you willing to be the bad guy with your kids? Are you willing to filter the content they consume, whether it be TV or music or video games? Are you willing to limit screen time or enforce bedtime? Do you monitor and question their clothing selections, language selections, and friend selections? It's easy to say yes to everything, but it's loving to discipline and reprove. Are you willing to do the loving thing by being a parent rather than a friend to your children? It's hard to reprove. It's hard to set boundaries and especially to punish. But we do it for the same reason that God does it us 
because he loves us and because he knows it's what's best for us. At least that's what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And later in verse 10, he disciplines us. Why? For our good, that we may share in his holiness. Why does God do it? Because he loves you. As the Apostle John tells us in his gospel, God is the pruner that takes care of his branches and makes them more fruitful. He writes, Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, if branches could feel, I can't imagine pruning being a very pleasant process. Hebrews 12, verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It can be more than just difficult and uncomfortable to reprove. It can even be frightening, unsettling to say things that may offend or upset. Parents who are unwilling to be disciplinarians do not have their kids' best interests at heart. Pastors who are unwilling to proclaim to their parishioners that they are sinners in need of repentance are doing their congregation a disservice. If you have a family member or a friend who is living a life that's contrary to God's will, whether that be living together before marriage, celebrating the sins of the LGBTQ community, working for an abortion clinic, or any host of anti-Christian, anti-biblical views, and you fail to engage in that uncomfortable, awkward conversation, you are failing to love that person. And of course, at one time or another, we're all guilty of this. We're all guilty of failing at this task. But thankfully, God does not. God always speaks to us the truth in love, continually reproving us, continually leading us back to him in repentance. God loves us and he disciplines us through reproof. God also teaches us discipline through the second R, restraint. And this is more of the discipline that I was referencing earlier. It's that delayed gratification. It's forcing ourselves to do things that we may not want to do, but we know are in fact good for us. As an officer in the Navy, I can certainly appreciate restraint because the military shapes and molds you to have this sort of discipline. You have to act in uniform with your unit. You wake up together. You muster together. You march together. You all wear the appropriate uniform according to regulation. You're taught to stand at attention, salute, have military bearing. You're taught a military code of ethics, and when you break that code, you face NJP, non-judicial punishment. When I was going through officer development school, we had a very regimented routine, especially for chow, starting from how we lined up in formation outside the mess hall to entering with respect and attention to detail. You stood waiting at your table with your tray until the very last person came up with their tray of food. You had to arrange your silverware, your food, your drink in a very precise way. You were ordered when to sit, when to rise, and your meal time was actually timed. In fact, someone was appointed to call out warnings, counting down to the very last second when you had to be finished. There was no talking, only eating, and you had to sit up straight with your heels together underneath the table. 
may seem almost a little silly how regimented it is, but there is a purpose for it all. Each of these strict standards taught us discipline, taught us restraint. I mean, think about it. If a sailor can't follow simple directions for how to conduct lunchtime, how can they be trusted to take orders when the ship is under fire? If I can't place my knife and napkin in the assigned spots of a lunch tray, how can I be expected to correctly operate all the detailed equipment on a ship? Or perhaps hitting a little closer to home, how can I be trusted as a chaplain to help someone with something as serious as suicidal thoughts? Following military orders to the letter of the law can mean life or death for my shipmates. So what does this have to do with our spiritual lives? Well, the practice of restraint is huge. I mean, our spiritual lives are on the line. The writer of Hebrews, he presents us with Esau as a cautionary tale. You remember Esau, the older twin son born to Isaac and Rebekah? He was tricked by his younger brother Jacob on multiple occasions. And yes, Jacob was, of course, the instigator. But think about the lack of restraint the lack of discipline on Esau's part. He was hungry. That's it. He was hungry. And in a moment of weakness, he threw away his entire spiritual birthright for a mere bowl of stew. I'm reminded of another Old Testament story. How many of you remember Uzzah? Probably doesn't make it into a lot of Sunday school curriculum. His short story can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. King David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and Uzzah was one of the men appointed to help transport this holy item. Unfortunately, when the oxen stumbled, Uzzah put out his hand to steady the Ark. But when this sinful man touched the holy Ark of God, he was immediately struck dead. That's it. That's his story. At first glance, it seems to be a bit harsh. I mean, he was only trying to help, right? To keep the holy ark of God from hitting the mere dirt. But Uzzah should have known better. He was not disciplined enough in that split moment to recall that God had given him very clear instructions that no one was to touch this holy ark of God. Restraint. Discipline, it's huge. How do we avoid becoming like Esau, like Uzzah? Well, hopefully you have better parents than Jacob and Esau. That's another sermon for another time. But we can look to another spiritual father for guidance, the Apostle Paul. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians about discipline. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul recognizes here that the race of faith is dangerous, that it is full of peril, And so we must take our training very seriously. Jesus has won for us this imperishable prize, the wonderful gift of eternal life. 
Yet in a moment of weakness, due to our lack of focus, we do not want to despise and throw that gift away. When I think about the discipline of restraint, I think about the season of Lent. As most of you know, the church has carried on the tradition of fasting during this penitential season. But the question that always comes up is why? Why fast? Why give up certain foods, drinking coffee, Facebook, or a host of other things for 40 whole days? I think there are a number of answers to this question, but let me share at least three benefits that I personally experience from this practice of restraint each year. First off, it's, it's difficult to fast, especially if I'm giving something up that I really enjoy. And when it's hard, it does three things for me. First, it makes me rely on God to help me. When I have the urge to break my commitment, that temptation, I'm continually directed to God in prayer to give me the strength to keep that commitment. Two, it reminds me I'm a sinner. The fact that I struggle so mightily with such a simple fast reminds me of my weakness, reminds me of my sinful flesh, and it leads me to repentance. And finally, it directs my thoughts to Christ. As I struggle with this commitment, with these temptations, I'm reminded of the one who resisted every temptation of the devil, who did it perfectly, and who did it all to save me, a sinner. What does the discipline of restraint accomplish? I think that when you really boil it down, it helps us as Christians to die well. All the sermons you listen to, all the Bible studies you attend, all the prayers, all the Christian conversations that you have, they serve to help you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus all the way to the very day of your own death. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that these things earn you favor with God. They don't save you, but they help discipline you. They keep you spiritually sharp, So that when the heat of the moment comes, when temptation catches you off guard, rather than doing what you think is right, like steadying the ark with your hand, instead you rely on what God has told you in his word. The discipline of restraint prepares you to expose the devil's lies and to guard your heavenly inheritance rather than trading it away for a bowl of stew. God loves us, and he disciplines us through restraint. And finally, God's discipline teaches us reliance. And this is where I'd like to discuss that most challenging aspect of discipline, affliction, suffering. Hebrews 12, verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, you've been tempted... You've endured suffering, but you've not yet had to die for your faith in Jesus. Each of us needs to be prepared for that day if and when it comes. And the mind-boggling, unimaginable way in which God prepares us for this is through suffering. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And this hope is not because suffering sort of just makes us intrinsically better people. Suffering produces hope because, again, it leads us to rely more fully on Jesus. 
When I began this message, I said that it was absolutely critical that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And the reason for this is twofold. First, we need to rely on Jesus to get us through the trials and tribulations of life. We need the God who took on flesh and can empathize with our weakness. We need a God who can give us strength to carry on in the midst of broken relationships, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of sickness, and in death. We need our good shepherd that can calm our fears as he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And second, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. And I don't mean any Jesus, but the crucified Christ. We need to keep our eyes fixed on the bloody, sin-stained, dying man hanging on a tree. Because that suffering Jesus is the only way that we can make any sense out of our own suffering. When you find yourself crying out to God, asking, Why, God? Why have you forsaken me? Keep your eyes fixed on the suffering Son of God who asked the very same question. Allow God's discipline, God's affliction, to drive you to a place of total reliance on Him. You may not get your answer to your why, but you do have the answer that you need. Jesus Christ crucified for you. God loves you enough to suffer for you, to die for you. The writer of Hebrews said that you may not have struggled to the point of shedding your blood, but Jesus certainly has. And one last word from Hebrews today. Hebrews says at the very end of our text that Jesus shed blood is greater than Abel's. You remember Abel, right? Adam and Eve's son who was murdered by his brother Cain. Abel's blood, Genesis tells us, cried out from the ground for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out for grace and mercy. You and I will always fall short. We can't keep perfect military bearing, or any bearing for that matter. But the good news is you and I have a God who can, who has. Jesus led a perfect, disciplined life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for you and for the entire world. And because of Jesus, because of your baptism, you are God's beloved children. And he treats you as such by disciplining you. God reproves you. God restrains you. And God afflicts you in order that you might solely rely upon him. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, next time that you endure trials and suffering, take joy. And remember these simple words from Hebrews. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Amen. Now may the peace of God which transcends all understanding guard and protect your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.